Come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters and unravel all of the chaos and complexity of day-to-day living in order to learn how to build an essential life. I have often advocated that what matters most lasts longest. Or in other words, that you have to be thinking really long-term if you want to even decipher the essential few from the trivial many. But more often than not recently, I have found that I feel like I'm just reacting and responding to the last thing on my calendar, the last thing that I'm doing, and that there isn't enough time for really thinking about the longer-term strategy and how it all fits together. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I'm confident that you experienced this as well, that in a Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat world, that it's just too easy to get pulled into the minutiae of this moment. And so for this reason, I have invited my friend Dory Clark, who has done so many great things, including being one of the world 50s most influential management thinkers. She teaches all over the place. She's in universities all the time. And she's written a new book, which I was in love with from the moment I saw its cover, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory Clark, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Greg, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Before we get into how this research and writing can help us immediately to uh, to do what it says on the cover, would you mind sharing a little more about, let's call it a Reader's Digest version of your life from birth till this moment? I can absolutely digest it for you. So I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. It was a basically a golf resort, kind of a retirement resort. So a little bit of a weird place for a kid to grow up. But there, um, it, it was a place that was tiny enough that it really made me want to get out and to do other things. And so I spent a lot of my childhood <laughs> just being frustrated. That's so interesting. I mean... That's like a scene from a TV show that I've seen <laughs> where you, you are you are living with basically older people and it gave you impetus to not be here, anywhere but here. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, as an only child uh, as well, you know, with, with older parents and then this golf resort. So I, I decided that I was going to hatch a plan to get out. So I left Pinehurst when I was 14. I entered an early college program at Mary Baldwin University in Virginia and uh, did a couple of years of college there, transferred to Smith College in Massachusetts, finished when I was 18 went to Harvard Divinity School and got a master's degree in theology and then spent a lot of my 20s um, just failing. <laughs> and uh, what does that mean? Well, what it, I, I had a lot of good good jobs and I was I was trying hard, but uh, sometimes this is one of the this is one of the themes that I actually talk about in the long game. You really need a lot of at bats because even if you are a good, talented person. Statistically, sometimes there are going to be things that don't break your way. And so 
my first job out of graduate school was as a newspaper reporter, which was a career that I really loved. And I still, I still write tons and enjoy writing. Um, but I got laid off about a year into it because the newspaper industry really had started its precipitous collapse. So I couldn't find another job in journalism. And I ended up switching over. I had been a political reporter. So I ended up switching over into working in politics. And I first worked on a governor's race and then on a presidential campaign. And they both lost. <laughs> so I had to uh, find new jobs after, after both of those. And eventually I became a nonprofit executive director. I was running a small bicycling advocacy nonprofit. And it was kind of bizarrely through running this bicycle nonprofit that I actually realized that in many ways, running a nonprofit is exactly the same thing as running a business. And I had this revelation one night. I'm like, oh, I could, well, I could do my own business. And so 15 years ago, I started my own consultancy and since then have been doing a variety of executive coaching and consulting and keynote speaking and writing and teaching. And now all of that experience has grown up into your magnus opus so far, The Long Game. Help me set context for why this book right now. In the early days of my business, you know, I was starting it in 2006. And I think for anybody who changes careers or, or especially who goes out on their own as an entrepreneur, all of a sudden you are just face to face with this question of, oh my goodness, how do I get business? How do I actually differentiate myself in the marketplace? And you're sort of overtaken with, uh, with this feeling like, oh, oh my gosh, why didn't I realize this before? Everybody does what I do. And, you know, people would come, you know, that I knew people who were friends and wanted to be helpful. They would come to me, they'd be like, oh, hey, so what do you specialize in? You know, where's, what's, what's your niche? And whenever they, they did that, they were trying to be helpful. They wanted to, to send people my way. I would freeze. I, I felt I felt like they were somehow taunting me because I number one, I didn't know. And number two, I, I just realized that it somehow I had to get myself known if my business was going to be successful. But it just seemed so impossibly hard that there's so much noise in the world. And there was a lot less, you know, 15 years ago, but there were so many competitors. And I thought, you know, how how am I gonna make this work? And so I had to become a student in order to make my business succeed. I had to become a student of the process of how do you actually get your message heard? And I realized that in the moment when you are striving towards something, when you're, you're striving toward a goal, it is really almost impossibly hard to tell the difference between when something is not working and when something is not working yet. And I had to go through some of those those uh, challenges and dark times in terms of of setbacks and getting rejected and you know no we don't want to publish your article no we don't want to publish your book etc. But muscling through that, I really came to analyze and understand the process because it frustrates me so much, Greg, that in our society so often it seems like it's the loudest voices that are the the ones that win, and I really want instead for it to be the the best people and the best ideas that win 
But it's it's hard because people don't necessarily know what that process takes or what that process looks like. And it, there's a long arc between coming up with goals and dreams for yourself and your career and your life and actually accomplishing some of those big long-term goals. So in the long game, I, I basically wanted to try to create a framework, um, starting with what I learned initially and, and analyzing it, could be able to persevere to get done the things that matter most. At the very beginning of the long game, you begin a story by saying, I bolted out of bed at the sound sharp, insistent. Can you tell us what follows? I can. One of the moments that I flashed back to as I was starting to write the long game, when I was thinking about critical moments that shaped my experience in the way that I, that I think about some of these questions, you know, how do we become long-term thinkers, was a moment where it was kind of a, a bit of a miserable moment, although a not uncommon one, where it was 3.30 in the morning, my alarm was ringing, and I was so disoriented. I had only gone to bed a few hours earlier because I'd been packing, and I had a 5 a.m. flight to catch at JFK, and I was racing to the airport. You know, it was one of those days that I think a lot of us probably experienced pre-COVID, I caught a flight to California from New York, uh, so you know, six-hour flight. Slept a little bit, worked an entire full workday in California with clients. Um, fell into bed, worked another full workday in California. Was able to leave just in time to catch a flight to Atlanta. Had dinner with clients in Atlanta, and then gave a keynote in Atlanta the next day. And all of that worked that week, but. There are a lot of times it doesn't work, and there's a lot of times that if you keep doing it, you realize, this is not how I want to live my life, and yet we are making choices. You know, At least pre-COVID, we made, we made the choices, but now we, we have our own variation of it. It might be on Zoom, but we are making choices that oftentimes are leading us away from where we actually want to end up. I so want to get to that point. You said something really beautifully uh, in this story. You said, I knew I could do it all. I had to. And that week, it all went off without a hitch. But speeding across the Brooklyn Bridge, I felt a quick, sharp stab. For just a moment, before I could tamp it down, it felt like loneliness. For just a moment, I wondered why I decided my life should be this way. I really felt something when I read that. Because, because I have sometimes felt that same sensation of like you're choosing the life you have. Now, I'm not saying everybody really is fully choosing the life they currently have. There are so many responsibilities built in. There are lots of limits and boundaries and challenges that people have that, that may make the path they're on the best option for now, but not entirely of their own choosing. But in my life right now, I feel like the vast majority of my choices are really of my choosing. So whenever I feel, well, this is a bit out of control, this is a bit too much, I really do wonder, well, why are you choosing it? Why are we choosing to follow a strategy that we don't mean to pursue, in other words, a short-term strategy over a long-term one. 
What's your thoughts? There are so many reasons. And the interesting part is that a, a lot of them are hidden. We can all point to the surface reasons. Oh, it's, it's, it's all the emails. It's all the meetings. Well, I, you know, I have to keep going. Um, part of it is that, you know, of course, for many of us, we um, have just been shoving 120% of activities into 100% of our time. And that really doesn't work that effectively. But there's something else at play. One of the most interesting statistics that I came across as I was researching the long game was a few years ago, there was a study done by the management research group. It was a very wide ranging study. Um, 10,000 executives they surveyed, 97% said that strategic thinking was key to their organization's success. And yet another study that was done, 96% said that they didn't have time for strategic thinking which is a little crazy so we 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 know you know that's that's our clue that's the tell it's not just the meetings it's not just the email there's something more and one of the crucial reasons is actually we are doing it to ourselves uh there's been some super interesting research done by Sylvia Baletza at Columbia Business School which has shown that in many Western countries, America chief among them, we equate busyness with status. And so there's often this push that if we if we don't have a full calendar, sometimes we actually might worry subconsciously about ourselves that we're not as essential as we are. Also, work can be a form of anesthetic we sometimes don't want to be asking those questions about, am I really doing what I should be doing? Do I really want to be here? What do I want my life to look like? It's a lot easier, Greg, to just hunker down and do more of what you're already doing than to ask some of those questions. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you... Cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, 
no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Greg. You're saying it's really more of a psychological phenomenon than just than just a cultural one. That's exactly right. You know, I, I, I've said this to myself a million times. I'm sure many of us have. Oh, if I could just get caught up, all I need is just like one more day and I'll get caught up and then I'll keep it in check. But those are stories that we're telling ourselves. Ultimately, there's a reason that we never get caught up. And that's that we keep making choices that prevent that from happening. Try to lay this out for us. Why should we be long-term thinkers? Well, ultimately, being a long-term thinker, it doesn't matter much if it doesn't matter to you where you end up. But I think for most of us, we, we have more aspirations than that. We have some kind of a vision. It might not be the clearest vision. There's, there's blurry parts. But we know that we want to make some kind of an impact. We know that we want to have some kind of a, uh, a family life or relationships. We, we know that we would like to have success, however we might define that. You need short-term thinking to change when you need to, but you need long-term thinking in order to set the agenda. Now, is the path going to be perfectly serene from here to there? No, you know, absolutely not. Um, things will change. There'll be detours. You'll have to adjust. But you want to have a direction there that you're aiming toward because that's what enables you to get there or if not there, at least closer to there. You can't do that if you're constantly and only reacting to external stimuli. And it also makes me think that what we need in life is the, the biggest, highest, single thing we can imagine so that that guides us and, bluntly speaking, also judges us because it, it, as soon as we have any sense of ideal, we then compare ourselves against it. And maybe that's one reason we don't like to think long term, because as soon as you do that, you start to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not doing the things I need to be doing to achieve that objective. And that's quite an uncomfortable feeling. It seems to me that in the long game, you're advocating not just for six months or a year or five year plans, but even more long term than that. Am I reading it right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's actually something surprisingly liberating about having truly long-term plans, which I'll call 10 plus years. And part of the magic is that you don't have to know how you'll achieve them. Sometimes people hesitate. They say, oh, but you know, I, I just wouldn't know, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to get there. Of course you don't. If it's a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, there's probably 27,000 steps between here and there. You are not expected to know how to do it. You keep the horizon in your sight line. And all you really need to worry about right now is, well, what's the next step? What is the next step that can at least move me in that direction so I am directionally correct? And if you keep doing that, you know, we can, if, you, if you're driving in the fog, you can get where you need to go three feet at a time. A professor friend of mine in Scotland, Ian Finlay, once coined a term he shared with me, he said, think eternally, act daily. That's great. I, I, 
I love that as I think about your work and this new book because it's really about how how infinitely can I think and then how minutely can I execute. Yeah, I think you raise a really important point, Greg, because one of the themes that I talk about in the long game as well is failure, which of course is the thing that holds a lot of people back. If you are acting on big goals, if you are trying to do meaningful things, people are concerned about failing. Um, and it's true, you know, if we if we don't know how to do something, if we have never done something, then definitionally it it probably won't work a hundred percent of the time. But when we think about acting in small ways, the small consistent effort, the small steps forward, what I think is really powerful, and this is a philosophy that guides me in a lot of ways, if you are taking s- s- small steps, if you are taking steps that are small enough, failure literally is an inappropriate way to characterize them. Something that you've shared with me is that you don't believe it takes a lot of time to do long-term thinking, but it does take some. Uh, it requires creating mental space. Uh, and that in order to gain mental space, you need to say no to some good things uh, and even decide what you're going to be bad at. I still struggle with saying no. For all that I've done with it, practiced it, taught it, I still have such a hunger to experience and to have an adventure. I think the closer you get to actually saying no, the the more heightened your awareness is of what you're losing. And then as soon as you've said no, that consciousness falls away and you start to feel all the benefits of having said no. But I think that's the test is that our, there's a term for it, the endowment effect is strongest the closer we get to eliminating something. If we can get over the hump, then we immediately start to feel the payoff. Your thoughts? I think that's that's really well put, and it's exactly right. This ties in with a series of questions that I share in the long game that I use personally to help evaluate uh, opportunities because sometimes it it is so hard. We're we're torn uh, about all of them. And so one of them, which I think is especially useful, is would I feel bad about this in a year if I didn't do it? There are some things that really are meaningful. And when you when you look back, you you wished you had been there. You wished you had been part of it. But most things are the equivalent of, you know, going to your friend's house for a barbecue. There will be other barbecues. It's okay. If you miss this one, there will be another chance to do it. But some of the other ones that I think are useful to ask ourselves, uh, number one, what is the total commitment? We often forget sometimes. We say, oh, you know, I could do that webinar. It's only an hour. And we forget about the hour of preparation and the two hours of planning calls and things like that. So we need the total picture. Uh, A second question is what is the physical and emotional cost? Because sometimes, especially when it comes to travel or uh, certain other onerous things, um, like going on the the trip that my friend invited me on, I would have been away for three consecutive weeks. And 
just all the flights and living out of a suitcase and eating airport food, I realized even if it was a fun trip, it wouldn't be that fun because my health would be run down. And finally, it's always important to remind ourselves of the opportunity cost because so often we frame it in our heads is, oh, well, should I take this international trip or shouldn't I? But actually, what we need to be saying is, should I take these five days and do this trip? Or should I spend five days literally doing anything else in the world? And when we realize that that's the alternative, it often changes the picture. I think this gets right to the heart of the matter about trade-offs. It's when people say yes to something, when I say yes to something, it is the strangest mental trick that I think I'm just weighing up whether this thing is good. You know, could this thing be useful in some way, right? That's like the, the thought process. And then if you extend it a bit and you say, well, there's trade-offs where people's heads seem to go as well. If I say yes to one thing, then I can see I'm saying no to something else. There is a trade-off, right? Like that seems fair and people can get their heads around that quite quickly. That isn't it at all. If you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to everything else. It's, it's not, you're not saying no to 10 things or 100 things or 1,000 things. You're saying no to a million things. Everything else you could possibly do is being said no to for that period of time. Is this the best possible use of this time? <laughs> and of course, that could stress everybody out, but that's really the question because that's what a yes means. I'm choosing this above everything else I could be doing. And, and that's a much higher standard for what you say yes to. That's exactly right. I love that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of my favorite sections of your book is about what long-term thinking will do to the way that you network. It's in a chapter called The Right People, The Right Rooms. And you have a summary at the end of the book. This is page 153 in which you share a series of points. I thought they were also good. I'd love to go through them. At first, you said there are three types of networking. Can you talk about those three kinds? I can, yes. So the three kinds of networking, the, the first one, which I call short-term networking, is basically the networking that gives networking a bad name. <laughs> and that is mm -hmm. all, the, all the people who want something right away. You are networking because I need a job. You're networking because I need funding or whatever that is. And what Adam Grant would call the takers. Exactly. There's a sense of desperation where you are treating other people like uh, an instrument rather than like a person. And that's the kind that I, I really discourage. Contrast that with the second type of long-term networking. 
So long-term networking is the kind that I would say most quote unquote good networkers do. And that is, hey, here's an interesting person. They're related to my industry somehow. I don't know how they can help me in the future. I don't know how I can help them, but I'm sure that somehow we can. And I want to get to know them because our paths are going to cross and it seems like they're doing good things. It's going to be relevant for me to know this person. I think that's a, a perfectly great approach, and a lot of a lot of good people um, pursue long term networking. That's that's awesome. The third kind of networking is what I feel like is the underappreciated resource, because a lot of people who are in fact good networkers nonetheless write this off because it doesn't seem immediately useful. And by immediately, it, it even could be, you know, over five years, 10 years, it seems like it would never be useful. And that is what I call infinite horizon networking. It is networking with people who on the surface, you are never going to have anything in common with them or a professional interest. You are an accountant, they are an astronaut, whatever it is. But those are the wild cards fascinating people in diverse fields that on the surface probably can't help you at all. You're building the connection out of pure interest in them as a person. And over time, who knows, your paths may converge in surprising ways. That's exactly it. The, in getting to know them, number one, it's just interesting, which there is real value in that. Number two, your paths may converge. Uh, it's actually very surprising how sometimes over over an arc of years, you end up entering a world that you didn't expect or vice versa. And number three, frankly, they may shape your trajectory. They may introduce you to people or ideas or opportunities that never would have come to you otherwise and nonetheless are transformative. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you come on, Dory, is because of this feeling that there just isn't enough space to think strategically, to plan thoughtfully, long-term, even planning the calendar three months, six months, nine months, a year in advance, and pushing out this reactive meeting-to-meeting -meeting experience. Uh, what specific things can I do, can the people listening to this do, to be able to create and clear more white space for this type of thinking? Well, creating more white space is absolutely the starting point because we all know that we can't pour more water into a glass that's already full. So the question is, how can we remove things? This is, uh, this is the key to essentialism, right? The, the disciplined pursuit of less. Let's get some less so that we can add the right things. So one strategy that I'll share, Greg, which I think is, is quite powerful, I think so often it's a little easy. It's a little glib to just, you know, tell people, oh, well, just say no more often. And they're like, uh, yeah, how? <laughs> we have we have obligations. We have people that we feel like we really need to, to do things. And of course, it is important. It's really important to learn how to say no. But I want to propose an interim measure for people who are struggling with that, which is that we can realize that even if we have trouble feeling like we can say no in a given situation. One tool that we have in our arsenal 
is that we don't necessarily have to accept the terms on which a particular offer is made. And so, you know, I think for many of us, somebody says, oh, hey, could, could we have lunch? Could, could we have that coffee? And we feel like, oh, goodness, I, I don't really have time. I don't really want to. But um, this person, maybe I should. It would be politically bad if I didn't, you know, whatever it is. And so we say yes to the lunch. We say yes to the coffee. And if we think about the total time, the coffee sounds like it's going to be an hour. It's actually going to be two and a half hours if we count getting there, waiting, running late, going back, all of those things. And so ultimately, one of the strategies that I suggest for people just to get a little bit more margin is unless the offer is something that you are genuinely excited about, in which case, by all means, do it, you can take that suggestion that they make and find a way to downgrade it. You could say, well, Greg, you know, I'd love to get together with you. My schedule is is crazy right now, but I know you mentioned you had some questions for me. Um, I would love to find a way to help. Why don't we schedule a call instead? If we can even downgrade the lunches to coffees, the coffees to calls, the calls to emails, you're actually oftentimes buying yourself multiple hours a week, and it's a pathway to get you started on tightening the criteria and being able to say no more effectively. I love that idea of, of just downgrading so that you, in a sense, if you're doing it skillfully, you're figuring out what the person really wants anyway, uh, which, you know, it's not about the coffee. Uh, so if you can, in the process, decipher that, uh, sometimes you can maybe whittle it all the way down to a five-minute favor where you can just actually take that move, do that thing, help that person in a way that's meaningful to them but isn't so burdensome for your own schedule. The book is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. The author and my guest today is Dory Clark. Thank you for being on the What's Essential podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. Great to be here. When you combine essentialism and effortless together, you will inevitably find your way to very long-term thinking, or especially the idea of thinking eternally and acting daily, of connecting the tiny action in this moment, what's important now, with what's going to matter for the longest down the road. Thank you for joining me for this conversation with Dory Clark. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously. 
which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.